Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Here in the United States, we are marking Thanksgiving this week. It's really my favorite national holiday. Why? Well, I like that it's secular, but more than that, the concept of how we mark it is something pretty much everyone can get behind, a rare thing these days. Thanksgiving is also marked in Canada and unofficially in Brazil and the Philippines, which makes it rather more global than most Americans realize. I have a special Thanksgiving-adjacent episode for you this week, and it's from Global Reboot, a seasonal podcast I host, which is now in season three. We often look at how to fix big global problems on that show, and the issue we took on for the interview I'm about to bring you now has to do with giving, specifically giving to people in dire need. You've probably heard the saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime? We've sort of taken that quote as applicable everywhere. But maybe that comes from thinking we have all the answers. What if we don't? What if you should actually ask that man what he really needs? Or just give him the means to buy what he needs? That is the premise of Give Directly, a nonprofit that has led the charge to popularize what are called unconditional cash transfers, basically giving money, cash, to people in real need and letting them figure out how to solve the problems in front of them. Well, Rory Stewart is the president of Give Directly. If Stewart sounds familiar, he probably should. He's a former cabinet-level minister in the UK. He's written several best-selling books on his travels, and he's the co-host of The Rest is Politics, a top British podcast. We discussed rebooting not just poverty, but also the global model for aid. FP Live will be back with regular programming next week and beyond. Remember, you can follow everything we're doing live on our website, and that's foreignpolicy.com slash live. If you want to subscribe or you want to gift a subscription this holiday season, Use the code FPLIVE for 50% off. That is FPLIVE, one word. Let's dive in. Rory Stewart, welcome to Global Reboot. Thank you for having me. So I thought I'd begin by just assessing the scope of the problem. Why is global aid necessary? And specifically, why cash transfers? Let's start with the fundamentals. There was an age of great optimism where people believed that global poverty was somehow disappearing, as it were, on its own. It's now clear that the decline in global poverty was very much driven by China and Asia. You know, China alone lifted many hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But that if you look at regions like sub-Saharan Africa, the absolute number of people living uh, in poverty has never been higher. There were 170 million people living in 
extreme poverty in Africa in 1980, there are 470 million today. And part of that is population growth, but in many countries, there's actually an increase, even in percentage terms. And, and that is extreme destitution. That's people who can eat maybe once a day, once every two days in many cases, will uh, be sleeping on a mud floor. They won't have a roof over their head. They'll struggle to get their kids into school. They will be malnourished. They won't have a tiny bit of money for any kind of resilience if they're hit by a shock of like a storm or a flood. They won't be able to start even the smallest small business. They won't be able to afford a cow for any milk or any calves. It's just they are absolutely in destitution. And I'm guessing uh, when you have crises or conflicts like what we're seeing in Israel and Gaza right now or in Sudan, all of that is sort of a force multiplier in terms of the the scope and scale of the problem. Yes. So in, in the optimistic days of the 90s and early 2000s, where people thought the whole history had ended and the whole world was going to become ever more prosperous and peaceful, uh, things looked pretty good. But since 2014, as the global order has collapsed, we've had more internally displaced people, more refugees, more civilians killed in conflict every year. And there is a sense of, of anarchy and chaos. And uh, increasingly, poverty is concentrated, not exclusively, but increasingly concentrated in states affected by conflict. Mm. Now, you mentioned China earlier, and that really is sort of the example of you know, a country that is able to uplift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's never happened like that at that scale anywhere else in the world in history. But it was enduring. And all of those people now are solidly sort of lower middle class or even middle class in China. And I'm wondering whether cash is a good replacement for a clear, proven, state-driven model. So as you say, I'm a huge advocate for unconditional cash being a very important part of the solution to extreme poverty. And I think that the way that we've thought about development in the past has been very flawed. And I think the numbers confirm that. Uh, there have been success stories. China is a good example of that. But that is not a success story of international development. That's largely internal China itself. So when we look at the traditional model, which is countries like the United States or the United Kingdom or Europe giving money through their aid agencies or through nonprofits to very poor countries, we essentially have seen much less progress than people believed. You know, we're, we're well off being able to achieve the sustainable development goals, for example, that people confidently projected we'd achieve by 2030. And I think cash is vital for this because I think there is nothing comparable to cash in terms of being able to allow the extreme poor to tackle their own priorities and needs. I mean, I think everybody's needs in a village are very, very different. And one of the arrogances of the international community is to think that you can somehow go in and, in the famous proverb, teach people how to fish so they can eat for a lifetime. The truth is that most of these villagers already know how to fish, but don't have the money for a fishing hook, or they don't want to fish. They mm. want to open a bakery, or they want to send their <laughs> kids to school. And cash is what gives people the opportunity to adjust to their own individual needs and priorities. Now, it's not the only thing. You also need public infrastructure. Um, but public infrastructure can be funded uh, through the World Bank, through loans from China. You also need good government. Now, good government is very difficult to achieve for an outsider. But it's 
the position of the extreme poor that's the missing piece, and even China, the final push to get people above the line was unconditional cash transfer for the final left-behind communities. You alluded to some of this, but the idea of handing out cash kind of used to be seen as heresy about a decade ago or so. What's changed? I mean, you mentioned the world order, but just give us a sense of why 10 or 15 years ago we were imagining different models of aid. Has all of that failed, the the state-driven aid model, the multilateral organization aid model? I think there have been some narrow successes. I think um, some of the work that Bill Gates has done in global health has been impressive. There's been progress on deworming, on malaria, vaccination. But it's relatively small in the big picture. You know, these successful niche effective projects are perhaps two, three hundred million dollars a year out of a 20 billion dollar UK aid budget when I was the Secretary of State for International Development in 2019, or $200 billion a year overseas development spend from the world as a whole. So it's perhaps one thousandth of what's going on, uh, which means that 99.9% of what we're doing has been much, much less effective. And this is partly because we've not been willing to measure it properly took us a long time before we started using randomized control trials to really ask ourselves, can we be confident that the thing that we're doing in this village is what's led to the outcome that we're seeing? Or could it be some other factor? You know, traditionally, a a program would say, well, we've been working in this village for 20 years, and here's this uh, girl who's now gone to university and studied biochemistry. That's a great success for us. But we didn't really ask ourselves, wait a sec, what if we randomized this and had a control test? Maybe it would turn out the girl was going to go to university anyway without our intervention. And then we began doing benchmarking studies and asking ourselves, well, look, if we took all the money that we are spending on doing nutrition training or all the money we're spending on youth business training and just gave it to people in unconditional cash, what kind of nutrition impacts would they find? What kind of business impacts would we find? And they began to find that they had better nutrition impacts with the cash than they were getting from the nutrition program. Because what was holding them back wasn't the training around nutrition. It was just the cash to actually buy the food. Now, you know, giving cash isn't new, of course. I mean, there have been state-run programs that have done similar things. There's historically Bolsa Familia in Brazil in the 90s. I think Mexico's done it as well. But those programs were usually associated with strings attached, uh, so maybe getting vaccinated. Um, Why is it that it seems like the new thinking, the new model seems to be to do it without any strings attached. Well, because when you attach strings to conditional cash transfer, um, you have to go through the motions of monitoring them. Now, I say go through the motions. Many of these programs are not properly monitored anyway, so the conditions are not properly followed through on. But attempting to follow through, to follow up on the extreme poor and work out exactly how they spent their cash you often end up spending as much money on the monitoring as you spend in giving out the cash. In other words, you could be giving twice as much cash if you dropped the the monitoring component. We saw this in Afghanistan. The National Solidarity Program, which was giving a couple of thousand dollars to a village, was spending nearly another $2,000 just following up and making it conditional and going through the application processes. And most of the evidence suggests, if you do randomize control trials, that the isn't any difference between unconditional and conditional cash, that by and large, the extreme poor receiving money will spend it on genuine priorities. 
there's mm. very little evidence in the literature that they waste it. And so actually monitoring them all the time is a waste of money. So we're speaking about a lot of this in the abstract, of course, but you are the president of Give Directly. For those of our listeners who aren't very familiar with its work, tell us a bit about how Give Directly does business. So Give Directly was a nonprofit that was set up by some graduate students from Harvard and MIT 15 years ago who began to see the evidence around cash and then thought, well, why don't we give it a go and moved to Kenya with about $40,000 that they borrowed from family and started just giving out money. And the results were absolutely staggering. You know, I was out on the Rwanda-Burundi border in February last year, and I saw a project in which in about three months, the cash going in meant that the village had gone from 40% with electricity to 80% with electricity, from about a similar number with livestock to nearly 85% with livestock, to extraordinary transformations in almost everybody ending up with a formal roof, having not had one before. Everybody ends up with a latrine, uptick in education enrollment, uptick in the number of small businesses, improvements in nutrition. And all of this achieved by just giving $700 per household. Whereas if you were to contract a nonprofit or a government to achieve those targets, you'd end up spending millions of dollars on a community that I suppose probably received cumulatively about $70,000. Wow. Even for something like electrification, because that, that strikes me as something that you, you need big state involvement in. Well, you do definitely need a state to generate electricity and distribute electricity. But this is often about the last mile. Often with water and electricity supply, these communities are struggling to get the last mile access to the backbone. And what they will often do is put their cash together to get that to run the electricity to the house from the mains or run the pipe from a pipe which is a couple of miles away into the centre of the village for water. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often use, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine and everything else it has to offer. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. In all of these instances, do you see Give Directly working alone or... I mean, you mentioned some post-crisis situations. Do you work in tandem with state-driven or multilateral-driven foreign aid programs? How does that work? Yes, we're we're very careful to coordinate. Um, in, In the early days, it was less essential. But as we become larger and larger, it becomes more and more important for us to be very thoughtful about the other actors on the ground. We were the first people to be able to deliver cash after the earthquake in Turkey. Now, that, that's, that's an impressive thing because there are a lot of very big UN agencies there. Um, and we were proud to be nimble, but we were also very respectful of what they were doing and making sure that our cash was complementary, that we weren't doubling up and we worked carefully through yeah. coordination mechanisms to do that. And in many countries, we work with governments. So we've been uh, discussing a great deal with the World Bank and the Democratic Republic of the Congo working through their social safety net program. Uh, we, in the case of Rwanda, are doing the national graduation program and the Rwandan government itself has announced that it's putting money in to give directly, which we're then matching. As we've grown bigger, it's become more and more important for us to recognize that we have to be part of national programs and international programs. 
Well, one of the things that plagues uh, many national programs and many multilateral organization programs is corruption. As you've pointed out already, I mean, sometimes those systems can be inefficient and inefficiencies and more layers bring about more corruption. Um, Give Directly's system is cleaner in that sense. But I believe your organization was also defrauded by around a million dollars in the DRC. How did that happen? And what kinds of learnings have emerged from that? Well, you're you're absolutely right. We had a terrible situation um, in the DRC. That part of Eastern DRC is a conflict zone. And so we were very worried about the security of our recipients. So we made an exception to our normal rules and allowed our staff to register the SIM cards. So money is delivered in these programs uh, through mobile money to people's phones. People in Africa bank on their phones. And that's wonderful because it means that you can directly transfer to someone's phone without going through government or middle people. But in the case of Congo, we ended up in a situation where some of our senior staff members on the ground, uh, instead of registering these SIM cards to the extreme poor, took the registrations themselves and then collecting the money themselves. And we identified this through our own audit mechanisms. But by the time we'd identified it, a lot of money had been stolen. Um, Now, as a percentage of our overall money, this was about 0.6% of our overall money. And it is a real reminder of the fact that fraud happens. And it was to do with a particular exception in DRC, but it was still something very, very shocking, which has led us to completely change our processes. We no longer allow staff to register SIM cards on behalf of recipients. We've, of course, instituted legal proceedings against the people uh, that were involved in this fraud. And we've been very open about it. I mean, we made a decision, difficult decision, to come straight out and say it had happened and how it had happened in a way that many other nonprofits haven't done because we believe that we have to share this information and people need to learn. We need to share these learnings to make sure we don't all get defrauded. Where do you raise funds from? And I ask this question because, you know, here in the United States, donors often like to see exactly how their cash is making a difference. I mean, big donors to U.S. universities, for example, often have strings attached more and more. How come your donors are the opposite? Well, no, we we, we come across a lot of of strings attached. I mean, fundraising is an odd thing. I mean, there's two different problems. One of them is governments. And I think Direct cash is very threatening to governments because it threatens jobs. So if somebody says to you how much money actually gets to the recipient, with most traditional development programs, you can't answer that question. And sometimes the answer is genuinely shocking. I mean, I saw programs when I was at the UK Department for International Development where we were spending $40,000 per school on a water and sanitation program. And in the end, when I visited the school, what that meant was two latrines, holes in the ground, you know, mud brick latrines worth maybe $1,600 and five red plastic buckets. So $40,000 had turned into less than $2,000. So, you know, the efficiency rates were just absolutely pathetic. There may be kind of 5% of the money actually hitting the ground, 95% being in my mind, largely wasted. That's one problem that's kind of producer interest. There's another problem, which is that the if you're a wealthy business person, there's an element of vanity involved. You think, well, I don't, I don't want to just be known for giving money. I want to give my ideas. I've just had a brilliant insight, which is that I've realized that chickens have eggs and eggs have chickens. So maybe if I gave chickens to people, they'd have more eggs and chickens. And explaining to them that 
this is vanity and madness that the idea that a successful businessman in the United Kingdom or the United States, I don't know who supplies sandwiches to the airport, knows what people need in a remote village in Malawi is madness. And of course, the point is, people in a remote village in Malawi don't need one thing. They need as many things as there are different people. Every house will have a different need. And the most respectful, most efficient thing you can do is give them the cash to fix their own affairs, which is why, you know, I personally support Give Directly with cash, because if if I'm looking for something where I really know my money's making a difference, this is something where I do know that it's transformatory, that it really does make a difference to someone's life in a way that's difficult for me to believe with many other projects. When I imagine, let's say you give someone a, a bridge, they can complain about the quality of the bridge, but you can't complain about the quality of money. It's it's just money. And then the question is how you use it. That's exactly right. And of course, they will often build a bridge with the money, but they will build it for a fraction of the cost that an outsider would do. Mm. You know, if you want a bridge over a small stream and you subcontract the traditional development agency to do it, they will send in probably foreign engineers, certainly engineers from the capital city who'll turn up in their big land cruisers and they'll spend a lot of time measuring the bridge and then they'll spend a lot of time procuring exactly the right equipment and then designing it and building it and contracting construction people. Whereas if you give the cash to the village and they put their own money together, they'll build it with their own labor, they'll build it with their own local materials and the thing will go up for 5% of the cost and at about you know, at a fraction of the time. As you examine the impact of direct cash and as more and more studies come in and as your work proliferates more, how does all of this compare to remittances from family members? I'm curious if the outcomes differ. They're basically the same thing. But remember, remittances are a little bit more of a lottery. They're a little bit more dependent on whether you're lucky enough to have a family member who's earning enough money abroad to be able to send the cash back. But it's exactly the same system. I mean, fundamentally, the only difference is we're dealing with the people in extreme poverty and destitution who may not have a relative abroad able to earn money and send money back. But fundamentally, the reason why remittances happen is that the people from the diaspora community intuitively understands that the best way to help their aunt, the best way to help their nephew, the best way to help their cousin is to give them cash, which is what will then allow Mm. them to get their education or meet their medical bills or fix up their house or start a small business. Given everything you're saying and everything you've learned about cash transfers and how important they can be, and I think the comparison with remittances is great because if you send back money to your nephew, it's because you trust your nephew. It comes from a place not of condescension, but a place of trust and hope. And and it seems to me that that's what you're implying the the cash transfer system can do. And its strength is humility, not condescension. How does this change the, the global world of, of aid, which I guess for decades before um, just functioned in a very different way? Well, I think you're absolutely right. What's, what's fundamental to this is that it's a complete antidote to the history of very colonizing, patronizing aid. I mean, the basic idea of aid really since the 1950s has been that the global north knows best. And and it disguises it in words like capacity building or best practice transfer. But really what it's saying is we know what's going on and we're going to turn up in your village and we're going to teach you how to be more like us. 
And it's not being serious about the fact that what's holding that village back from being like you is not that they're stupid or that they lack knowledge. They have far more knowledge about their own community than you're ever going to have. The idea that you would be able to survive or you and I would be able to survive in a small village on in the remote Malawi, know how to get by eating once every two days, eking a living out of a desiccated soil with, I mean, it's unimaginable. What they're lacking is cash. And the most respectful thing you can do is to say, we trust you. You know more than I do. You care more than I do. You can do more than I do about your community. I'm just going to give you the wherewithal. I'm going to step aside because this isn't cash really, it's freedom. It's the freedom to make decisions. And it's a profoundly respectful way to deal with a world that is often not respectful at all. And so do you think that that sense is now being infused into the larger universe of aid and of multilateral donor organizations, which, as we've been discussing, can have many layers and many outposts and a lot of inefficiency and oftentimes some corruption as well? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I think that the big challenge is at the moment, there is about $200 billion of international development aid. And of that $200 billion, maybe $3 billion goes to cash, $4 billion. So it's a tiny percentage of the total amount. And the big fight is how do we, over our lifetimes, change that? How do we get these organizations to acknowledge how their entire system is a sort of what we used to call a self-licking lollipop? that so much of the money is just kind of recycled into these bureaucracies. It's not always corruption. When I talk about this DFID program in which 95% of the money is not hitting the ground, it's not exactly corruption. The money is being spent on the salaries of engineers, consultants, monitoring and evaluation Mm -hmm. people, people designing programs, writing strategies, feeding the system. And they would be horrified at the suggestion that this was corrupt or they were stealing the money. In fact, if I say to them, listen, this is a $40,000 per school program and they're only getting less than $2,000 of benefits. So why don't we just give $2,000 to the head teacher and tell them to get on with it? They would say, oh, no, but the head teacher might steal the money. And they can't acknowledge that they've basically stolen 38000 out of 40000 because it's not called stealing. It's called administration. So of that $200 billion pie, how much in, in your ideal world should be cash transfers? I'm guessing it can't be all of it because you, yeah, you do need some administration and outreach. You can't be all of it, but I'd like to see at least half the money going on cash. And I think if we did that now, we're putting $100 billion a year into cash transfers. I think you would see a very dramatic change in global mm-hmm. poverty. I think if you even had a donor brave enough to work, let's say, in a country of 10 or 20 million people, put in two or $3 billion over 10 years, you would see incredible results in dropping the headline poverty rates in those countries. Somewhere like Malawi, for example, where 70% of the population was in extreme poverty 15 years ago, and today 70% of the population is still in extreme poverty. If you were to put in even three, $4 billion over 10 years there, I think you could transform those numbers. Mm-hmm. Rory, you famously walked across a part of Asia for more than 18 months, uh, across Afghanistan uh, in the early 2000s. How did that experience influence your views on cash today? What did you see that has shaped how you think about these issues all these years later? Well, I think the, the fundamental thing that's, that's shaped everything for me 
has been the sense of the gap that I discovered between the reality on the ground. I stayed in 550 village houses. I was walking for just over a year and a half, speaking to villagers about their lives. And then I returned to Afghanistan and I reintegrated with the international community. I'd been a diplomat and I, having been in communities where they were at war with each other, where women had often not been more than two hours walk from their village and their lives, where perhaps one out of a hundred people in a community could read or write. I was suddenly back in Kabul and hearing somebody say, every Afghan is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And I just thought, this is mad. I can't even translate this into language that people understand. And I think that was the beginning of my understanding, the surreal gap between the rhetoric and the reality. Now, my solution to that initially was the wrong one. Initially, I thought the answer is we just need to get closer to these communities. We need to do more language study. We need to spend more time in these communities. The real breakthrough came with Give Directly, where I realized that you just, no amount of language study or immersion is ever going to allow someone like me to fully understand the needs of that community. The most efficient way to do it is to give them the cash and let them fix their own affairs. It seems to me this is also a journey towards more humility. 100%. I think it's a, a story about trying to get to radical humility, trying to get away from all the fantasies and vanity which so many of us have in thinking about development. We want to change the world. We we have ideas from when we were children about how we're going to help other people. And it's it requires a lot of humility to understand that one of the best ways you can help other people is to get out of the way and just give them your money. Rory Stewart, I wish you the very best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. And that was Rory Stewart, the president of GiveDirectly. Next week, what to expect from COP28, the annual climate summit. I will speak with Vijay Vaithiswaran, the global energy editor at The Economist. Remember, you can watch these interviews live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount to join in. FP Live, the podcast, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. The executive producer of FP Live is Tal Al Roy. I'm Ravi Agarwal. I will see you next time.